0: Thank thank you very much. Thank you all uh, for coming. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here in St. Louis. I uh, came in last night, so I got to spend today wandering around a little bit and seeing how beautiful the city is. Uh, Thank you to the Show Me Institute. Uh, I Really love finding out about what's going on at the Shelby Institute. Uh, I'm a, a very, very voracious consumer of state policy network analysis because uh, you know if, if you believe in federalism, right, then what happens is that there's like a policy experiment going on in every state and they're competing to show us what the right thing to do is. And if they do the right thing, if and, and when they do the right thing in Missouri, <laughs> <laughs> that, if, you know, as a hypothetical matter, were they to pursue sound policies in Missouri, uh, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> making funny, that the the Shelby Institute would document it and teach the rest of the country about it. And um, when I left the White House, uh, one of the things that I did uh, is that I immediately called up Rich Lowry and went back because I had to uh, with, with resign my position uh, at, at National Review. Uh, I started at National Review uh, way back when William F. Buckley was, was still alive. And I talked to Rich about the fact that it feels like, and this is almost an introduction to today's talk, it feels like that the, the voices that oppose free enterprise, uh, the voices that want us to become a socialist and even totalitarian uh, regime, that, that they, they have a lot of bully pulpits Uh, And and they're sort of throwing punches at us every day. And the thing that kind of frustrated me um, at the time, uh, when I was in the White House especially, uh, if if, if you remember, I was kind of on TV all the time. I was doing the White House pressers. And and it kind of felt like, and I didn't mind that much. You know, I'm a working class Irish kid from Massachusetts. I like it when somebody (laughs) takes a poke at me. But, But I never really felt like there was any, there were a whole lot of people out there defending us when we were doing the things like deregulation and tax cuts and so on. And the Wall Street Journal, Paul Gigo, very good friend. They're a great place. But I kind of feel like the Wall Street Journal is a place probably by far the most visible and erudite place that defends free enterprise in in popular society. But I feel like the the opponents of free enterprise attack us every day. in many different places. And I don't know how many times I've written for the journal, maybe 100 times in my career, uh, and I get to fight back once a month. And, and it, literally that was the idea that Rich and I talked about when we decided uh, for me to join the National Review Institute uh, as the, one of the founders and senior advisor uh, to a project called Capital Matters, and you'll excuse the pun. Uh, But Capital Matters is the most vibrant economic uh, conservative page on the internet now. Uh, In a typical month, we get millions of hits. Uh, We uh, started out with an all-star cast of really famous uh, economists uh, and economic thinkers, Wall Streeters, Uh, and, and our objective was to be a place that punched every day. Uh, and a metric of, for me, the metric of success that's the greatest is that we get about 50 submissions a day now from people we don't even know because everybody wants to be at Capital Batters. And I was just uh, at a black-tie dinner a couple of nights ago on Wall Street where the William F. Buckley Prize was given and given to Amity Schlaes, uh, the biographer of Calvin Coolidge. And uh, Amity now has a regular column once a week with Capital Batters. I mean, how awesome is that? And so, so, you know, I I uh, am here uh, to support the Shobe Institute, to get to know St. Louis and you folks, and to let you know about Capital Matters because I think that you probably agree that it feels like we're at a struggle, and we don't have a we don't have enough you know tools at our disposal, and we created one that's really taken off, and I really love sharing the news about it. Now. I, I uh, if if you see me on Kudlow, uh, I have a deal with Larry that that I go on about once a week, uh, and if you see me on Cudlow, he always introduces me by saying that I'm the author of The Drift, stopping America's slide to socialism, the most important book of the 21st century. <laughs> right? I mean, he he really he really does say that, and I just kind of laugh because well, it, it, it is. <laughs> And, and, and I just didn't expect that Larry, Larry would be smart enough to recognize him. <laughs> I'm just teasing. He's one of my best friends in the world. And, and obviously, he's ribbing uh, when he does that. But when I look back at my time in the White House and what has happened to society and what we need to do about it, then I began to really, really think about, like, what, what are the big forces that we're up against? And, and where do they come from? And, and that's really what uh, the drift is about. But it started when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors, and I was chairman. And I could see that, that not only are socialist policies everywhere, and I'll talk about what socialism is in a minute, uh, but there are people It used to be that if you said, oh, that's socialist, then you're saying, oh, you know, that's an insult, You know, an ad hominem attack. But now we've got people that call themselves socialists. You know? and, and, and so I'm thinking we really need to talk about what is socialism. What are the costs of socialism, the opportunity costs? uh, What happens to our freedom if we become a socialist country? And so we wrote first a report, and then a chapter in the economic report of the president, which I'm responsible for being the editor of, really, uh, about socialism. And the left went nuts. They absolutely went nuts. And they said, I was the most partisan CEA chair in history because I was willing to take on socialism. And 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 when they did this, and, and, and like if you see the way the internet treats conservatives, then you can imagine how mean these folk, folks are. Uh, it's just because they're not in the room with me. They wouldn't have the courage to be mean if they were in the room. Uh, but on the internet, the people are really, really mean. But But my response to them was just this. That Do you know why the Council of Economic Advisors exists? Well, they'll say, well, no. Well, it was founded in the 1946 Act. Do you know why the 1946 Employment Act happened? I can see there's some people here that you know, might, might have been around then. Um, <laughs> and then uh, they'll say, no. Well, here's the setting. Let's go to the Wayback Machine. Uh, we had just won World War II with our allies. And we had done so by centralizing production. Remember, like you had to have a stamp to get milk. And we took, you know, we, we defeated the Nazis with our industrial production. But the industrial production was not as centrally planned as people thought. There's a great book by Arthur Herman called Freedom's Forge. I really recommend you read it about how free markets won World War II. But the socialists were on the rise because they were basically making the argument in the US and in the UK especially that, well, we socialized everything, and we won the war, so that's obviously the better way to organize society, so let's just keep it that way. And against that backdrop, uh, Friedrich Hayek wrote the book The Road to Serfdom, and he talks about how if uh, we become socialists, and I'll talk about his analysis in a little bit, that we'll lose our freedom. That you could look at Adolf Hitler and Stalin and think, oh, well, they're just you know bad, evil dictator types Uh, that happened upon a socialist country, and he said, no, no, that's not what happens. What happens is you become socialist, and then you get leaders like that. That's what the road to serfdom says. In the US, uh, Hayek's book sold 10 million copies, and it was all the rage, and Democrats and Republicans thought, geez, we don't really want the US to become a socialist uh, country, and we're worried that it might. And so you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna found the Council of Economic Advisors. And the Council of Economic Advisors has a very unique status of the government that we're not on the GS pay scale, I could hire anybody I want, pay them whatever I want, and I have walk-in privileges in the Oval Office, so if I think the president needs to hear something, then I don't have to go through the bureaucracy, I don't have to go through the staff secretary process, I go in and I tell the president. And it's because that's the way it's written in the 46 Act, that they wanted, and it says in the act that we need sound economic thinkers to basically defend us against socialism. And so the idea that I was doing the job that was crafted for, for people like me uh, in law, that, that it would draw such like, awful attack from the left, is a symptom of, I think, the, the world that we're living in. And it's a world that I think I, I understand and have figured out, and that's why, why I wrote the book. Um, so first, what is socialism? Because we're going to say, we want to stop a slide to socialism, and uh, a lot of people will uh, think, oh, I kind of know what socialism is, but you've never really thought, well, if you told, you had to tell your 10-year-old what socialism you might not be able to do it. Uh, and and the thing is that, that in the economic report of the president and in our first study on socialism called The Opportunity Cost of Socialism, we've got sort of a 20-page definition <laughs> of socialism. But I'm going to, in keeping with the discussion that we had at the National Review Institute at the Union League Club uh, just a little while ago, where we uh, were such fun people at the National Review Institute that we had a 300th birthday party for Adam Smith. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And and, and so so stealing from my colleagues there, uh, the way to think about it is that that Smith sort of believed uh, that, uh, that liberty and justice and recall that the Founding Fathers all read The Wealth of Nations. Uh, that that uh, George Washington's annotated copy of The Wealth of Nations is, is the book that has the most of his writing uh, at Mount Vernon. And, and, and he believed that liberty and justice go hand in hand. And the way the discussion sort of made it really quick and easy is just this, that, that liberty basically means that you get to live your life and people don't mess with you. Uh, and you've got to write to make your stuff and keep your stuff—that's okay, what liberty really is. Uh, justice is uh, basically the thing that is broken if somebody intrudes on your liberty, uh, according to Smith. And so, so as an example, uh, if your neighbor were to say, "Hey, you know, I see you have a nice crop uh, of corn," you know, I. I uh, you know, drank last year's corn whiskey all year and didn't plant and, and, and now I'm hungry so I'm going to tax your corn 20%, then you would say, well, then you don't have the right to do that. Maybe I'll be charitable and help you out. But if your neighbor were to take your stuff, then they'd, it'd be an injustice and they'd be infringing on your liberty. And so, so the problem is uh, that we even conservative economists believe that there is some role of government. Uh, and that because we have to have a government, then we have to sort of give up a little bit of uh, our liberty uh, and let the government take some of our stuff. And, and so then the question is sort of like, well, how much? And we'll talk more about that. But the thing that um, I like to do right now is just sort of think about, well, what is socialism? Socialism is, is uh, in the in the extreme, it's a place uh, where the government owns all the stuff, owns all the capital, the government owns everything, and it hands it out to you. And it hands it out to you according to its whim, not according to like, your individual merit. Have you noticed that the left right now has a war against merit, right? Uh, because socialism doesn't like merit. Uh, socialism, they, the central authority wants to hand the stuff out. And so, but, but the government doesn't necessarily always own all the stuff and hand out all the stuff. Uh, Sometimes the government will sort of let you, you know, produce your stuff, uh, and I'm going to use the word stuff a lot, so just get used to it. Uh, uh, They let you produce your stuff, but then they'll tax you 80%. Or you'll have a business, they'll let you build your business, uh, but then they're going to have five bureaucrats watching your every move and telling you, you got to do this, you got to do that. And so it's not much different than if they were running the business themselves. And so when we look at a policy, like extreme socialism is the government sort of controls all the stuff, hands it out, runs it. Centralized uh, agriculture and so on are extreme examples uh, from the 20th century. But if we look at a specific policy, the question we have is, is are they basically violating my property right over my stuff? Uh, are they going too far? Uh, and, and if you go far enough, then you know, you're basically looking at socialism. And now in the economic report of the president, we went back and looked at the history of socialism. And we showed that if the government takes something over and starts producing it, then output goes down a lot. Uh, In fact, when the government takes over agriculture, then people starve. When Venezuela took over the energy uh, industry, then their oil production tanked. Uh, It's very, very common for the government to take stuff over and for there to be famines that even kill billions of people. Uh, That's what happens with the government. Uh, takes over stuff. And it's kind of obvious. So then the question is, the question is, why, why is it then that we have people that want the government to do more and more of that, even though it seems like you know, intuitively obvious that, that they shouldn't? And, and it's even more of a puzzle if you think about what happened to the world. There's an economist at Columbia named Xavier saleh martin who shows that basically global income inequality and global poverty didn't really improve much all the way up until around 1980. But then in 1980, the idea that free enterprise was a way to deliver prosperity to people started to spread around the world, and then all of a sudden, income inequality started to drop sharply, and the percentage of people living on the World Bank's uh, measure of uh, poverty, less than a dollar a day, uh, went down to, from the many, many billions to uh, maybe 100 million now. Uh, and so the spread, of and Xavier shows that the spread of free enterprise did that. And so we've got like the central planning examples. Of, like why would you want to do that to our country? But then we've also got the spread of free enterprise being like the largest force of social justice, positive force of social justice in global history. We almost eliminated global poverty by spreading free enterprise, and yet there are people who are out there who oppose it. They oppose it religiously. I. Um, excuse me if this is an extreme example, but I'll go to a campus and I'll say, uh, hey, you know, here you know, this is my talk, Stopping America's Line to Socialism. You're allowed to have a talk like that. Uh, but if the title of my talk were Capitalism is Good, uh, then there'd be protests and violence. And people, people will raise their hand and say yes. And then I'll ask the students, uh, really it, comically, I'll, I'll just sort of say, so what if the title of my talk was Bestiality is Good? And they say, well, nobody would protest. Nobody would protest. And so capitalism, which has delivered so much good, is hated by so many and opposed by a big chunk of uh, the American uh, political elites. And so why is that? Now, uh, my, my view as an economist is that, uh, that the most dangerous type of uh, economist is somebody who's uh, an ex-post uh, theorizer. And so so there's like ex-ante, that's before, there's ex-post, that's after. And so an ex-post theorizer is somebody who looks at the facts and then says, well, here's my theory, explains those facts. Uh, The problem is that that there's not necessarily like a unique uh, ex-post theory for a set of facts. Usually there isn't. Could be a lot of reasons why that something happened. Uh, And so if you want to wonder, like, how do we end up in the world that we live in today that looks just like this? Then what you want to do, and what I searched for uh, when I began this work, was find somebody ex-ante, somebody a long time ago who thought about free enterprise in America and looked ahead to today and then theorized about what it might look like. And it turns out that there is such a person. Uh, his name, and I go into this in great detail in the book, his name's Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, he wrote a book that's uh, You Need a Forklift uh, to Move Around, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. and. Uh, Here's what he said, and I'm going to go kind of fast, because I really want to have lots of time for Q&A. Uh, what Schumpeter said is that he wrote this really, he started writing it in the 20s, but in the 30s uh, it came out. And he said, well, you know, free enterprise is the best way to organize society. He was an Austrian economist. Uh, and so America's going to be really, really prosperous. And so he said, here's what I think it's going to look like going forward to 1970. And then he listed how much GDP would grow, how income inequality wouldn't get worse, Uh, and so on. And so he said, that. so we're going to go from this newly industrialized country to this incredibly, incredibly prosperous country. Uh, Capitalism is going to be incredibly successful at delivering welfare to the American people. He said, but capitalism is going to sow the seeds of its own destruction. And and here's why, according to Schumpeter. so, So now it's almost like Think about the world we're living in. Close your eyes and listen to Schumpeter for a sec. You don't have to close your eyes, but you can. Uh, So he said, well, as we get wealthier, right now people run businesses. They got farms. They need their kids to stock the shelves, to stack the eggs, put the ice down in in the the ice cellar and cover it with sawdust. Uh, But when we get wealthier, then what's going to happen is that everybody's going to start sending their kids to college. I'm not kidding. And he said, the problem is that colleges are going to be seminaries where people are indoctrinated to be socialist. And he said that professors are inherently socialist. Not everyone. Aaron, I, will about I have some doubts, at least uh, now and then, but <laughs> he's not. But he says that, that you know, for the large part, the professors will c- control the universities. And they'll use the universities to indoctrinate people to be socialists. And the problem with that is not that uh, that the university that all of a sudden like the kids are going to go back and be less good at stacking the eggs and throwing the ice down the in, in the ice cooler. It, 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 it's that the elite universities, their their top graduates, are going to control the media. And so then we're going to have all these socialists. Controlling the media is like all this socialist drivel in the media. And then since they control the media, then they're going to control politics. Because the thing that every politician is going to recognize that he needs or she needs in order to be successful is the approval of the media, the approval of the New York Times. And so Harvard, he and, and, and he was at Shepherd or was at Harvard uh, when he was writing this, Harvard's going to run the New York Times, the New York Times is going to run American politics. Uh, they're going to tell everybody that they need to be socialists. And here's the most important thing, and this is the thing that we're going to come back to at the end, that they're going to uh, possess the elite academic institutions, they're going to possess and control respectability. And they will withhold respectability from people who defend free enterprise. And so, and, and we could go on and on, Aaron, but if you look at like economics professors that are known to be conservative, then they don't get tenure. Uh, and, and so Schumpeter's view was that because the media would control respectability and, and withdrawing respectability is gonna ruin your life. You're not gonna be able to get a job. Uh, that there'll be nobody left to defend free enterprise. Nobody will stand up and say, wait a minute, guys, what are we doing? Because that person will be destroyed by the New York Times and the other media outlets. Uh, and so capitalism will die uh, because there'll be no one left to defend it. OK, uh, doesn't that kind of feel like the world that we're in? except, except we're, we, we want to look at ex-anti theories again. Uh, there's another person who looked ahead to today, a little bit later, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and he saw something coming that Schumpeter didn't see coming. And Schumpeter was really one of those smartest guys in history. Uh, His writings are just astonishing and and visionary. But the one thing that Schumpeter didn't see coming was the internet. And a person who did see it coming really early on, even before it existed, was a person who is difficult to read but essential to read. Uh, It's sort of like Joyce's Ulysses. It's like one of those things you need to do, even though it hurts. Uh, uh, But his name is Marshall McLuhan. Uh, And Marshall McLuhan was an information theorist. Uh, He's the guy who said the medium is the message and so on. And uh, but but he wrote a lot of really interesting sort of theoretical analysis about how the internet was going to change society. So it's kind of like the fact that we got this new medium, that's the message. It's like really important, he said. (laughs) And he said that what would happen would be that the first thing that's going to happen is that we're going to go uh, turn into something that he called a global village. And by global village, it, in contrast uh, to, say, a curated society, which we lived in pre-internet. So in a curated so- society, you know Walter Cronkite and the other Harvard guys get together, and they say, well, what are we going to tell people happened today? What are we going to tell people who are the jerks at Congress and who are the heroes and all that kind of stuff? You live in a curated society. You get your information from somebody who is trained to be a socialist. And then the internet comes, and then we become a global village. And in the global village, the reason he calls it the global village is that in a village, uh, then the way you find out what's going on is you walk down to the village square, and you know maybe on a Friday night everybody goes down, and maybe there're bandstands everywhere. They'd have like people playing in the bandstand, and you know, once a week or so on the weekend everybody go down, and they'd hang out by the bandstand, and then you say, oh, did you hear? You know, Martha has cancer, or whatever but you would get your news by talking to your friends to the village. And so McLuhan said that what he saw coming with the internet was that it was going to fundamentally blow up our curated society because we're going to become a global village. And that there'll no longer be a monopoly over our attention, but rather uh, that there'll be a a competition uh, for our attention. And uh, if you look at at, at his analysis, Really, really at times convoluted and brilliant. But, you know, I'll, I'll attribute this to him, but, but I'm, I'm taking some poetic license. But, but it's analogous in his mind, uh, and he mentions Gutenberg a lot, to uh, the invention of the printing press. And uh, the only thing you need to know about the invention of the printing press is that before that, the church controlled what you get to see, and they banned books. And you had to go to the church library to to see the stuff, and then all of a sudden there's a printing press, and you know Martin Luther, you know he he nailed it on the wall because that's what you do with your dissertation, and then somebody said, oh, people might want to read this, and so that all of a sudden you could make a million copies, and you got Protestantism, because you had the printing press. And the interesting thing is that you go out and and look at what happened to society after the printing press. Uh, After about 10 years, there were tens of millions of books in print. And almost all of them, uh, except for the Bible, were books that had been banned by the church. (laughs) And you got incredible revolution, uh, and the bonfire of the vanities, and all the stuff that happened back then. Well, McLuhan looked at the internet, and he said, you know, that's what's going to happen to us that we're going to go from this orderly curated society to this competition for attention. And it's going, to be, it's going to get potentially really ugly, because the people who had the power are not going to like losing it. And there's going to be a big struggle against them, and then a big fight back. And at the end of his analysis, which gets me close uh, to the end of my talk, uh, McLuhan said this. It's so another time to almost like close your eyes and think about, OK, so this, these guys really saw the world we live in. Um, and they didn't really tell us what to do with it necessarily or what to do about it. But, but he said, you know, what's going to happen is the curators, the elite that are used to curating your life, are going to recognize that they can curate it again. And the way they curate it again is they recognize the power, and now I'm going to use exactly his phrase, of organized inattention. And so what's going to happen is that the elites are going to see, oh, there's a competition for attention. I've lost my power. They're listening to this guy instead of me. So let's cancel him from the internet. Let's make it so he can't use the internet anymore. Let's make it impossible to find that guy's stuff. And so what do we do about this? And, and you know, I think there's, there's a lot. one thing we do about it is we recognize that we kind of understand the problem. I, I think that there's definitely nuances that could improve uh, by analysis, but I think you would agree that that's kind of what's going on. And, and you believe it more because ex ante theorists saw it coming, and, and they they explained why, and then it all kind of makes sense. But for me, I've decided that the, the sort of the nub of it all, uh, the place where we stand tall, is that we have to recognize. And Aaron mentioned the tax cuts. We have to recognize that the people who weaponize respectability against the champions of free enterprise, they have no right to claim respectability for themselves. And uh, for the tax cuts, that the, we came out and we said uh, incomes, I went into the Oval, I said incomes for ordinary Americans are going to go up between four and $8,000 per family. And President Trump said, well, Let's, let's tell them four. Let's under promise. Uh, actual number was 5,600. Uh, and uh, there's a new National Bureau of Economic Research paper out by four nonpartisan economists that documents that the tax cuts worked exactly the way we said they did. But when we said it, uh, you know, one Harvard professor uh, said that, you'll remember this, Aaron, they said, they said, they said what, what are we supposed to think about this Kevin Hassett guy? And the guy said, well, Kevin Hassett's either stupid or a liar or both. <laughs> said that said that on CNN. But the point is that, that the data came out the way we said. And since uh, the, the policies of deregulation, which moves you away from socialism, tax cuts, you have to keep your money, moves you away from socialism. Since those have begun to be reversed, then You know, our theory of how the world works would be, oh, well, that's gonna be really bad for incomes. That's really gonna be bad. Remember, free enterprise is the thing that delivered so many people out of poverty. But if we roll back free enterprise, then people are gonna go back into poverty. So let's look at at the numbers now. Uh, Since 2019, right before COVID, uh, because inflation has gone up, but wages didn't keep up, real incomes in America uh, through a couple months ago have dropped by, it's actually the same number, by $4,000. So the average American, say, who had $70,000 in income, in real terms, their income's $66,000 now. And then you know, the, the liberal media are like, wait, why are these guys not recognizing that inflation is going down? They should be happy. And so imagine you go into your boss and he says, well, you made 70000 last year, but this year it's going to be 66000 Then you go in next year, he says, I got good news for you. It's, instead of going down $4,000, we are going to go down 2000 You go to 64000 are, are you happy? No. But the people who say you should be happy, they're the people that still yeah, inappropriately wield too much respectability as a weapon in our society. And so, our mission really is, and this is what we do at Capital Matters and what we do at Show Me Institute and what we do at 97.1 with a better voice than mine, uh, is, is we fight back with the facts because people care about the facts. People care about poverty. So, so poverty in America, my latest piece at National Review, I really commend it to you. The r- latest poverty st- statistics came out. You move towards socialism, that is going to move people back into poverty. That's what we would say ex ante. Um, For uh, female-headed households, uh, the poverty rate in the latest numbers uh, over the last couple of years went from 11% of female-headed households uh, were below the poverty line. Uh, And uh, in one year, because of inflation, it jumped to 22%. And uh, for people who didn't have a job, their wage can't keep up with inflation by definition. Uh, Their poverty almost doubled as well. And so right now, people who didn't work last year, uh, the poverty rate for them is 29%. So we've got a poverty explosion, rapidly declining real incomes. We've got exactly what happens when you embrace socialism. And so what I would ask of you is a final thought, and then we're going to go to Q&A, and you're going to help me moderate that, right? Uh, is that, that you, you know this now. And so when somebody asserts that they actually control respectability and that they, they're the ones, uh, oh, don't listen to that person, he didn't go to Harvard. Like, just tell those people to go take a hike. And don't let anyone uh, make you feel like they can withhold your respectability or uh, withdraw it because you champion the things that are true. Because it could be that if I'm like the only one, that they'll be pretty effective at making it so it's really hard to find me. And if you read my Wikipedia page, it's filled with stuff that's false about negative things I did that I didn't do and so on. It's like, yeah, they're they're doing it. But if we're all voices for free enterprise, if we all stand up for the stuff we talked about, they can't cancel us all. Uh, They really can't. And that's kind of like the mission, I think, that I hope, if I'm successful, that people who read the book, uh, The Drift, will find themselves on. And with that, I thank you for your attention. And then we're going to uh, open up for QA. Q&A. Thank you. <laughs> and you've got a mic. So. I, I don't know if I to sit in the chair or music. There's one chair. Maybe we should play music. To sit in it, <laughs> Kevin Passett, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, thanks.
1: So uh, if you guys have questions, please, please uh, raise your hand. But I'm going to start. I'm going to start with one. I had, um, our mutual friend, Arthur Laffer, on my show last week. <laughs> and I asked him this question, Kevin, so I'll ask you. I, um, I was relatively close with former speaker, Paul Ryan, before he was considered a rhino, like me, I guess. But we used to have conversations, and Art and I talked about this last week, about enterprise zones for solutions for poverty. What happened to that idea? Maybe explain what that is. I was always a fan. Nobody's talking about that now.
0: Au contraire. (laughs) Uh, It's true that the enterprise zones are no longer discussed. And it's because uh, the current CEA chair, uh, Jared Bernstein, who works for President Biden, and I about a decade ago, uh, studied why enterprise zones didn't have the success that Jack Kemp and the people who really believed in them thought they would, and then developed a better form of enterprise zone. Uh, We called it the Opportunity Zone. And the Opportunity Zones are just hitting the ball out of the park right now. And they're basically the idea, the same idea of Art and Jack uh, and Ronald Reagan, Enterprise Zones. But the problems with that uh, design have been fixed. And capital is flowing into, into poor neighborhoods in a way that you never could have expected. It's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. But here's the basic idea. The basic idea of Enterprise Zone is that I really want to help a distressed community, say. And so I go and I put in a convenience store. But how do I know that, that I'm not gonna, like, they're not going to steal all my stuff? Uh, am I going to be the only one who goes? But then if I go and I like, make the thing work, then um, if I sell it, uh, then I got to take the money and start another to keep the tax advantage, start another business at another place. And I got to do it right away, otherwise I lose the tax advantage right away. Um, and so what we did with Opportunity Zones is we made it so that people who want to make a difference, So there's so many places in DC and in St. Louis where they're starved of capital. They need people like, like you all to go in and make a difference, but you don't know how. Well, now there's a way. Because what happened is that the, we set up uh, something called uh, qualifying funds. And you could think of it as being like a private equity fund. And you could put your money in that thing your money and then they'll go around and they'll start businesses in distressed communities that are defined as distressed according to things like unemployment rates and poverty rates and so on and then if they you know have a successful investment here then they can sell it and then wait a while and study it and invest it over here Uh, and you don't lose the tax advantage uh, you the investor until you take your money out of the fund and uh, to get people to really want to do this What we did is we set it up so that if you have unrealized capital gain, so say you put money in the S&P 500 (laughs) 50 years ago, then you could take the unrealized capital gain, put it in a, a qualifying fund, not pay capital gains tax on it. And then in the qualifying fund, they could invest in distressed communities. And if they make money over the next decade or so, then great for you, great for the communities. And then when you sell, you still pay tax. And so it's not really like avoiding tax, it's freeing capital. To go into distressed communities. That was the design of Jared and my paper back then. And when we were doing TICCHA, uh, Gary Cohn and I were very aggressive about making sure that it made it into law. And there's you know, a lot of new academic work out showing that wage growth is higher in the distressed communities and that hundreds of billions of dollars are flowing into them. But so you're right to emphasize that. Uh, but I guess I need to give Article and talk about opportunity zones, because maybe he, he's so busy. He's the busiest guy on earth. And and one of the my favorite moments of my time in the White House was when uh, Larry Kudlow and a few other people and I were in the Oval talking about who should get the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom and Kudlow and I were like it's got to be Art Laffer right (laughs) and and President Trump immediately said yes you're right and then I I got to be there in the Oval uh, with him at the ceremony Uh, so but Art's an American hero and Art actually going back to my talk is kind of the first example of the sort of cancel culture leftist elite uh, so he was a champion of free enterprise. And then the left-wing academics went after him and tried to destroy his career. But he's such a talent that all they did is make his career better. Uh, but but no kidding. Art, young kid out of Stanford, uh, youngest tenured guy over at the University of Chicago. Uh, by my count, in like the first two years, he had 10 refereed publications in sort of top three journals. So he was hitting the ball out of the park academically. Uh, then he went to work for Nixon. And then people started to listen to him talk. And he talked kind of like he does today. And, but he's just this young kid. Like, I don't even know if he was 30 when he was doing it. And the threat that the, that the left that I'm talking about in my book saw uh, was so severe that you might have heard of Paul Samuelson, Nobel Prize winner, uh, left-wing uh, MIT uh, uh, professor. Uh, Paul Samuelson went to the University of Chicago when Art Laffer was a kid, economist. So imagine if, like, a, a giant, like, if someone my age attacked somebody in their 20s. It's just unsportsmanlike, I'm sorry. Uh, and and, and he, he the title of his talk, I'm not kidding, was, Why We're Laughing at Laffer. He did. He gave that mean talk, and he gave that mean talk because he was doing exactly what Schumpeter predicted people like him would do. And if you look at... Uh, like Samuel said, what he wrote about Milton Friedman when he died, you could also get a taste for the sort of venom of the left at these academic institutions.
1: We'll have some questions. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, would you comment on Orr and Cass and the, the class of they call themselves conservatives and probably are, but they also have the, a the industrial uh, uh, effort component. There's throwing Reagan and and uh, Milton Friedman under the
0: bus. Uh, what do you think of, of this? So, I have high regard for Oren as, as a person. Uh, we email all the time. Uh, and uh, you know sometimes I listen, sometimes he listens. Uh, but I think that, that what happens in e- either party is that wh- when you, know, you don't have the momentum you'd like, then thought leaders begin debates about why. What are you guys doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? What, you know, and, and, and I think that the, a party of ideas, which I would hope every party would be, at least the Democratic and Republican Party, would love it when people say, well, here, here's what you're doing wrong. And then people say, well, no, 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 that's not it. It's this. Uh, and so I think that the, having that kind of debate, you know, it always heats up in parties where, they, where they've had some defeats and I think it's, it's appropriate and good that we're having that debate now. But, but if you go back and look, what it reminds me of is that you know, the Democrats had sort of lost over and over. Uh, and then um, uh, Bill Clinton came along. And uh, Bill Clinton was a child of the DLC, the Democratic Leadership, Leadership Council, Council uh, which was, uh, frankly, to the right of the American Enterprise Institute right now. Uh, It was really like they were for business tax cuts and and the era of big government is over and like in AEI they wanna have big government just defense. But but Bill Clinton didn't govern as a conservative but he ran as a conservative. Uh, and, And he did so because of the sort of intellectual competition within the Democratic Party that was led by one of my best friends of the world, a guy named Rob Shapiro, who is one of Clinton's top economic advisors. Uh, and, and I think that Oren has served that function, and he's doing it like, with an earnest desire uh, to foster debate. Um, in fact, he, he uh, just asked me to debate him on NPR about something. And I, so I just think that that's a good thing.
1: When we have Corey Bush here in St. Louis, we have no intellectual debate. We're not familiar with that. Who else has questions out there? Yes, sir.
2: Is part of the drift to socialism that socialism is sold to the masses kind of as free lunch?
0: Yeah, I, I, right. So, so the point is that here, here's the thing. The, the, when I, I, I could do it right now, uh, that when I look around at my community, uh, which is mostly DC, uh, I see so many problems and troubles, that they're so upsetting. And I want to do something about it. And I feel powerless that I can't do something about it. And that if you have somebody who's, who comes to you and says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it, then it would be great if they could. The problem is empirically, we've learned that, that they can. And that I think that, that our job is to, to help people make a difference because they want to, and then show that they can, like with opportunity zones. And so that's that's the way I think about it. Is is that that it's we we can't just say hey, uh, free enterprise. Look at Xavier every students work. It destroys poverty. So you know, stop being a socialist jerk. You know, I mean, that, that, that's not that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is I understand how upsetting it is that society is falling far short of where it should be. And I've got a plan to try to make a difference. I can help you. It's not me making a difference. It's you making a difference. I want to help you make a difference. And uh, the point is that you're not going to make a difference if you hand it off to government. You need to, and that's the way I want to. I like to characterize it with people, too, is just to, like, take responsibility for the world a little bit, that you can make a difference you know, coach little league, or, or, you know, work in a soup kitchen, or raise money for this or that, uh, and, and don't expect the government to do it because the government's going to fail. And if you look at the inner cities in America that have run, been run uh, by monopolies of one party, mostly for a long time and how poorly they're doing, you can see that the people who have handed off the responsibility for social justice to their governments are themselves derelict in their duty and responsibility to their fellow citizens. As, sorry, I have a strong opinion about that one. Uh, yes, yeah. sir. Yeah,
2: I've been waiting two years to ask this question. Now we're out of time, thank yeah. you.
0: <laughs> I can't wait two years and remember anything, too. <laughs> in the, in the,
2: First question, sort of a tongue-in-cheek question, and I actually have a second question. But two years ago, two days ago, um, the William F. Buckley Prize dinner was in Dallas. The next morning, at Harlan Crow's house, mm-hmm. there was a there was a breakfast, and you were on that panel. And the four people on that panel were Rich Lowry, yourself, uh, René Perdew, and uh, charlie cook mm-hmm. and the question came from the crowd and this was october of 2021 what do you think will be the rate of inflation in the summer of 2022 and so then went left to right and rich and at that time the, the inflation rate was 2.8 mm-hmm. rich said 3.0 Ramesh said 3.2 charlie said 3.3 you said 8.4 <laughs> And there was a gasp that went up in the
0: crowd. And it was almost exactly correct.
2: And you, 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 my question is, you were off by a ten. <laughs> <laughs> just wrong?
0: wait, wait for the revision.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but my other question is, if the idea is something you talked a little bit about, socialism and.
0: Okay, can I wait uh, because I, I just want to respond to that one yeah. thing that you said because I don't like to. Uh, like, like sort of say oh you get the numbers right and, 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 and so therefore when i tell you the number then you should believe me what i want to do is teach you to get the number right yourself and here's where the 8.4 came from So right now i'm going to teach you guys to do it yourself so so if uh, government goes from spending say 20 percent of gdp to spending 25 percent of gdp okay that means that nominal uh, gdp is going up by five percent forget about multipliers for better uh, and so uh, if supply is really elastic and all, we get all the supply online and we can increase supply by 5% of GDP, then prices don't go up. But if supply can't move, suppose you have a president that's raising taxes and, de- and regulating more and stuff like that, the supply and there's you know disruptions from COVID and all that kind of stuff. So supply can't move and nominal GDP goes up by five or 6%, then what has to happen is that prices have to go up by five or 6%. Uh, if you spend $10 on 10 apples, apples are a dollar a piece. If you spend $10 on one apple, there's been a lot of inflation. And that's what I could see coming. And so I would say, okay, so right now we're like at 2.5, but they're going to spend 5% of GDP. Supply's not going to move, so it's going to be 7.5 or 8. That's where inflation comes from. And so now, now you guys could do that too, right? <laughs> but, 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 but
2: at the idea summit, you talked, and I thought it was a great example of, of sort of good socialism, how they try to sell good socialism. There's, you know, people, these people have a lot, and these people have virtually nothing, and their babies are hungry, and we should all go together and make sure that goes. And But in reality, it's really sort of a, you know, the, the state would take over and, and basically kill the economy as a result, could you talk to that?
0: Right, and that, and that's the thing that, that, again, if you just Google, uh, I think it's 2019 is the socialism chapter, economic report, is that correct, Aaron, do you remember? Uh, But but Google the socialism chapter and the economic report of the president because the charts are chilling about what happens. Um, And it's not just like when the government takes over, uh, but also when you move in the direction of the government taking over. There's a big literature that takes these things like the freedom indices and shows how they affect human welfare. And then like what we've just seen over the last couple of years is really visible in the data. And we've got a bunch of charts that are really, really interesting, including a lot of stuff that we took a lot of hits for uh, uh, about like what happens to like deaths. Uh, and a lot of times the deaths are caused by the governments. They're, they become brutal. I said I was going to mention Hayek a little, I didn't get to it, but but, uh, Hayek actually explains why socialists turn into totalitarians, so that I could sort of see some totalitarian leanings going on in our society more and more. Uh, And he basically said, well, socialist policies are going to be ineffective, like incomes are going to go down, poverty is going to go up, and so socialists are going to be unpopular with anybody who can sort of find out the facts. And so in equilibrium, the only socialists who can keep power are the ones that are brutal.
1: Way in the back there. Uh, Would you support the U.S.
2: going back to a gold standard? And if so, how would you make that happen?
0: Oh, yeah, so the question about the gold standard uh, is a common one. And uh, it's motivated a lot from the fact that we had a gold standard for a long time. Uh, Things seem to kind of work OK. And folks don't necessarily really trust the Federal Reserve's independence (laughs) Um, or that like if I take a dollar and stick it under my bed and take it out a year from now, that I'll be able to buy the stuff that I want to buy. And so the currency can be debased. And, and so one way that you could sort of be sure that that's not going to happen is to take something that has value, that has a predictable supply, and then just sort of say, I'm going to peg my currency to that. The, the problem with gold standards is that we've never really in the U.S. had a gold standard. It's just that we have a gold standard for a few years and then they renegotiate. So people say, oh, well, the U.S. would never default on the debt. I think if you count gold standard, uh, what would happen would be because of a war or something, they'd suspend convertibility to gold. Uh, then that kind of counts as a default because if you have my dollar and it says you can turn it into gold, and then all of a sudden, well, well actually, no, you can't. That's a default. Uh, and so I think that, uh, my view, is that, that we don't necessarily need to have uh, monopoly currencies. If you go back and look early 1800s, there were maybe 2000 currencies competing uh, for your attention and, and, and uh, your wallet space uh, in the US. Uh, and I think that the, the digital currency space is uh, something that you know the Biden administration is trying, I think, quite brutally to crack down on uh, because they, they see that it's a threat centralized authority uh, but what I what I want to see is a competition uh, for uh, being like the currency I want to use and I'm happy for there to be a lot of entrance and if somebody wants to have like a, a digital currency that's tied to gold because it probably at least probably exists that I'm fine with that but I don't think that the US government establishing one and saying okay everybody this is the one you have to use that that's not the world um, that I think we should be in. and, and don't forget that uh, financial institutions are about the sort of most inefficient institutions in every economy on earth and the way to think about it is that, right, like if I give a talk in England and then they mail me a check and I take it to my bank and I say, okay, here's my check, then they take like 6% of the money for themselves for for the right to just get my money. Uh, And the financial institution that's doing that to me, you know, can do that to me because they're making me use dollars and that's controlled by the central bank. Uh, But now, if I go give a talk in in London, then they can pay me in Bitcoin. And I get the whole thing. Uh, And so I think that this revolution in uh, digital currency space responds to what I think is the correct motivation to your question, that geez, it feels like the monopoly, the government's monopoly over currency is something that they abuse. Uh, and, and, And I agree, and so what we need to do is make sure that the government isn't able to entrench its monopoly by shutting down um, the crypto space
1: we have time for only one more question mr carl edwards you get the question don't suck all right i'm just saying it's the last question
0: here and don't mess with my stuff
2: (laughs) thank you for for doing all that you do to to further the facts right okay what do you think about the idea when this competition for attention it's something like a, the average 15-year-old in America spending, I think, eight hours and 53 minutes or something mm. attached to an algorithm that is a new paradigm in this world. It's, it's really interesting in how it keeps that attention and delivers information. What do you think about the battle against that? Where does, that, where does the future of that? Is there regulation? Are we, are we, are we, are we?
0: Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and, and uh, it, so so I, I played with TikTok a little. To, I played with TikTok a little to to just learn like what, what it is, and very rapidly, like the only thing I could get was chess videos. <laughs> so it's really great to to be here uh, uh, today. Um, I, it, it, and I'll never be here uh, as an inductee, too. I, I can promise you that. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of movement in social media. And uh, there's a very disturbing Supreme Court ruling today about it that 's allowing the Biden administration to continue to censor people to to organize and attention uh, until they have a final ruling on it uh, in the summer and in other words, that the organized attention is going to be something that we really have to deal with until after the primaries and i can 't believe the Supreme Court did that uh, I, so I, I think that that the internet uh, it's a thing that, that like, in, in my family, the, the, the way I dealt with, with it was that, uh, that we had one TV in the house, uh, and it was only on on the weekends, and uh, on the internet, you got to use the internet for an hour a day while you're doing your homework, your homework done fast, you can get, you can continue to do it, uh, but if you erase your history, then, it, then your right to use the internet is gone, and I'm going to read your history. <laughs> um, I think my kids are kind of okay. I don't think they really liked that. But the point is that, that do I think that there's... So suppose that you agree that Kevin's approach to it was like a sensible parenting approach. Maybe that could have been harsher or what. Uh, but should we have the government tell everybody they have to do that? It, that, that doesn't feel right to me. Uh, but I think what we should do is educate people about like, you really need to take advantage of your power as a parent <laughs> to control this stuff. Like, so, so my kids like, never had phones as an example, because then you can't control
1: it. It is a great question because I, I worry about young people in the indoctrination, and I have a 23-year-old indoctrinator who teaches social studies in Columbia, Missouri. So, you know, like I talk about stopping this slide to socialism on my you show. Do. I know that you write about it and talk about it all the time. We don't have time to get into the rest of the landscape of the media and the malpractice and the bias, but there are great concerns. Ladies and gentlemen, buy the book. A warm welcome, a round of applause for Kevin Hassett. Thank you. Thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you very much for participating. Thank you, Thank you again for all of pain. We appreciate it. Thank you again.